I don't know about you, but I want to shout that last song from the rooftops. That's an awesome, awesome song, an awesome message. Praise the Lord. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. How many of you in here had a teacher in elementary school or in junior high or high school or maybe even college or grad school who made a significant impact in your life in a positive way? Raise your hand. Right all over the room. An impact that's still felt to this very day. How many of you would credit some of the successes that you've had in life to that particular teacher? Yeah? Yeah. All over the room again. Or how many of you would go as far as to say this, that, that you are more of the person you are today due to the impact of that particular individual? I'm sure if we went around the room this morning, there would be a great number of you who could name a teacher or even give a, a short list of, of teachers who have made this kind of impact. Now, I want you to do me a favor this morning. I want you to think about that particular teacher for a moment, and I want you to ask yourself this question. What was it about that individual that made him or her so great? What qualities did they possess that made them such a great teacher? I was thinking about this myself a few weeks ago, and I made a list of, of several qualities that some of my favorite teachers possess that caused them to stick out for me and, and see if these sound familiar to you. First is intelligence. The teachers that I learned the most from in school were intelligent. They knew their stuff. They had a good grasp on the materials that they were teaching. And also, they had the gift of communication. So not only were they intelligent, they were able to communicate what they knew in such a way that a small-minded person like me could understand it. Another key quality was availability. The teachers that I had that made a huge impression on me growing up were those who were available and approachable. Those I could sit with before or after class and those who would, would look at uh, the assignment with me and projects and papers I was working on and give me, give me guidance on those things. And those teachers who didn't seem too put out when I asked them questions or too anxious to move on to other things when I stopped by their office to ask a question. That was a key quality for me. Another one was impartiality. The teachers who made an impact in my life were those who were impartial. Those who did not play favorites. Those who treated myself and everyone else the same. Another key characteristic, another quality possessed by some of my favorite teachers growing up was creativity. I loved teachers who were creative who were not afraid to, to do things out of the norm or a little out of the box. That always made learning enjoyable for me. Another key quality was passion. Some of my favorite teachers were those who were passionate about what they were teaching. Passion is key, isn't it, in teaching? I had some teachers that could make the most fascinating subjects dull and drab while others could wake the dead teaching trigonometry. 
So intelligence, communication, availability, impartiality, creativity, fervency. I'm sure there are more I'm missing out, but those are some of the key qualities in my opinion, that made for a great teacher. And it was rare if you could find a teacher that possessed, you know, quite a few of those qualities. But when you did, didn't it make learning enjoyable? If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 7. We are continuing our sermon series this morning through John in a series I've entitled Knowing Jesus from John. And this morning, we're going to be talking about knowing Jesus as the great teacher. And in this text, we are going to discover that Christ possessed many of these qualities and more. He is the greatest teacher the world has ever known. He was such a great teacher that some of the Pharisees, even though he was unschooled, addressed him as rabbi, which means great one or great teacher. That's how great he was. Listen, no teacher has made a bigger impact on the world and no teachings have brought about a greater transformation than Jesus's. Notice some of the characteristics that made him great. First, his investment is great. His investment is great. What separates good from great teachers is the investment they make. And listen, Jesus was invested. He invested in people. Let me show you where we see this in this text. First, let me set the stage for you here in the first part of of chapter 7. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that though Jesus had gained uh, quite a following at the beginning of John chapter 6, his teachings toward the end of the chapter turned many away. Well, roughly seven months had passed from the events of John chapter 6 to the events that we're going to talk about today in John chapter 7. And the reason we know this is because in John chapter 6, these events take place around the time of Passover. And the events of chapter 7 that we're going to look at this morning take place around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jewish tradition tells us that the time between these two events were about six to seven months, probably around seven months difference. So seven months has passed. And again, Jesus's popularity has greatly diminished from where it was in the first part of chapter six. And notice John doesn't tell us a whole lot, does he? About what was taking place during this seven month period. But notice what we do learn from him. Look at chapter seven, verse one. After this, which is after the events of John chapter 6, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So here's what we learned from John here. We learn after the events of John 6, Jesus moved about Galilee with his disciples for seven months and he steered clear of Judea because the Jews wanted to kill him. Though he knew he was eventually going to go to the cross, his time had not yet come, so he hung out in in Galilee for a time. So John gives us very little here, doesn't he? He does. But though that's the case, we learn quite a bit more 
from the other gospel books about this time period. We're told that during this time period, Jesus continued what he had done throughout his earthly ministry. He performed miracles. He taught. He confronted Jewish religious leaders. But for the most part, get this, he spent his days and evenings with 12 disciples. Now I want you to notice something here. In John 6, we learn that Jesus spent two days with a multitude of 15 to 20 thousand people yet he spent seven months after with 12 men and what did he spend his time doing well the other writers of course they tell us he performed many miracles he continued to rebuke Jewish religious leaders and he spent a significant amount of time teaching his disciples the truths of scripture revealing to them the deep truths about God and sharing with them what he came to earth to accomplish. And you say, okay, Graham, I, I, I see that. What's the lesson here? I'll tell you. Here's the lesson. Jesus shows us here by his actions that discipleship is priority. Discipleship is priority. Listen, Jesus did not come ultimately to draw record-breaking crowds and baptize people by the thousands. He came primarily to make disciples. He came primarily to invest his life in a small group of people and then give his life to accomplish salvation for them and others so that most of them, 11 of the 12 and others, could go out and change the world with his gospel. He came to invest in these men. He came to lead these men. He came to teach them and then to empower them to continue his work. Listen, I believe he, he delayed going to Judea partly for this reason. Yes, it was not yet his, his time to lay down his life and accomplish salvation for his people, but one of the main reasons why I believe is because he was still preparing these men for the work to come after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Many miss this emphasis. They do. Many miss the fact that discipleship was a priority in Jesus' earthly ministry. We often don't focus on it, and many in Jesus' day miss this as well. Notice what Jesus' own brothers say to him in verse 3. They said to Jesus, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. So you have Jesus' own brothers, his half-brothers, who miss this here. Notice, at that time they didn't believe. But I truly believe that, that they wanted to believe. They just didn't. Some say, you know, they're mocking Jesus and setting him up to be killed by getting him to go to Judea. I don't believe that for one second. I believe his brothers loved him and they wanted to believe. They just didn't. So they're telling Jesus, Jesus, make us believe. Make people see. Make us believe by performing great miracles and doing mighty works in public so everybody can see. They say, why are you here in Galilee ministering in secrecy? 
Go out and show people who you are. Go and prove it. Which is interesting, they didn't even believe, but they knew about the works he was doing in secret, right? Kind of throws their idea out the window, doesn't it? And we know this is not going to necessarily draw the right kind of people, right? Remember in chapter 6, tens of thousands of people had seen Jesus multiply a kid's lunch to feed thousands. But when the, the teachings got too tough, most of them left. They thought, man, Jesus, if you'll just stick to multiplying bread and fish, we'll be right with you, man. But your teachings are too tough, so we're out. And Jesus let them leave, didn't he? Now, he could have adjusted his message, made it more seeker-sensitive. He could have just focused on doing miracles and drawing crowds by the thousands. But again, that's not what Jesus came to do. And in response, he turns his focus toward those who stay, those like Peter who were looking to and following him because he had the words of eternal life. And Jesus spent the next seven months with these men and a few others pouring his life into them. Why? Because discipleship is priority. His brothers missed that. Folks, discipleship is what it's all about. It is. This is what Jesus came to do. And this is what he calls for us to do as well. Before returning to be with the Father... Christ, before he ascended, he called for us to make disciples in Matthew 28, didn't he? He said, you're to follow my example. You're to follow the example that I, the good teacher, have left for you. You are to invest your life in people. As you're going about your life, you are to invest your life in people. You are to make disciples. And guess what? That's exactly what 11 of the 12 original disciples did. And that's what those after them did and so on. The great teacher invested in people who became great teachers, who invested in people who became great teachers and so on and so forth. And the rest is history. Nothing has changed. Discipleship has always been the way. And it is today. Discipleship is to be your primary focus as believers, and it's to be the mission of this church. Do you know that? Look at our mission statement up on the screen. Now, I've shared this with you a few times, but this is where this comes from. Matthew 28, look at it. Fellowship Bible Church exists for the purpose of making disciples by escorting people to Christ, establishing people in truth, and equipping people for ministry. That's our mission statement. Why? Because discipleship is the way. Discipleship is priority. Jesus taught this. He exampled this. He lived this, and he called for us to do the same. How are you doing in this area of your life? Are you investing in people? You may say, well, Graham, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I don't have the gift of teaching. I mean, God's not called me to teach the Bible. Well, guess what? Sorry to tell you, if that's your mentality, believers, it's the wrong one to have. Because Scripture is clear that each and every one of us, as believers, no matter who we are, we are to be teaching at some level. At some level. 
We are to be getting established in truth and we are in turn to be equipping others. Now, like I said, at some level, there are different degrees to this. You may just be teaching your spouse or your children or your grandchildren. You might be leading a Bible study or or something even bigger than that, teaching in Nicaragua. But we're all called at some level to make disciples. This is a universal call for Christians, for believers that, that Christ gives us in Matthew 28. We're called at some level to be equipping others to teach and to impart wisdom so that the body of Christ, God's people, the church, can be built up. You can't get away from this truth in Scripture. You can't. Especially when you consider the earthly ministry of Jesus. Again, he taught this, he exampled this, he lived this, and he called for us as followers to do the same. So so this is one reason Christ is to be thought of as the great teacher, because his investment is great. Second reason Jesus is to be thought of as a great teacher is because his knowledge is unmatched. His knowledge is unmatched. Again, one good quality... One key quality that separates a good teacher from a great one is having a lot of knowledge and being able to effectively impart knowledge to others. Jesus possessed this quality. He was knowledgeable and he was a gifted communicator. Now notice here, back in the text, notice in the text that though Christ did not go to Judea right away, though he remained in Galilee for a time, he eventually made his way to Jerusalem, but he did so secretively. We learn in verses 10 through 13 of John 7 that Jesus eventually went to Jerusalem, but he laid low at first for a short period of time because, again, it was not safe for him. His time had not yet come to go to the cross. But Jesus did eventually resurface in Judea and when he did so he did so in a big way we're told in the middle of this Jewish feast Jesus goes to the temple and what does he do he teaches he teaches look at verse 14 through 15 about the middle of the feast Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching the Jews therefore marveled saying how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied So Jesus eventually goes from Galilee to Judea by himself during this religious celebration, this Jewish celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, which, by the way, let me give you a little background on this just briefly. This was an annual celebration for the Jews, and it lasted about a week. And at this time in the first century when they celebrated this, people would come from all around to Jerusalem, which was, it was around the time of October. It'd be October, our time. And they would build booths all throughout the city streets of Jerusalem. And they did this to, to remember their people's time in the wilderness. And they did this to symbolize and to celebrate and to remember God's faithfulness to his people in the wilderness. And I don't believe it's by accident that Jesus strolls into town in the middle of this celebration, do you? I mean, was Jesus not a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people? You bet he was. So about the middle of the week, during this important celebration, Jesus makes himself known. 
by teaching in the temple. And notice the response. John says, the Jews marveled at his knowledge. They were blown away. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, what did he teach? I don't know. John doesn't tell us. But I think we can make a good guess as to what he was teaching. See, at this time, when a famous rabbi, a traveling teacher was in town, he would go to the temple, and he would teach the people from the Scriptures, which, of course, at this time was the Old Testament, right? So my guess is Jesus, with this religious observance in mind, the Feast of Tabernacles, probably went into the temple to show how God is still faithful to his people today by sending his son. Jesus probably spent time showing those in the temple that the Old Testament points toward himself and what he has come to do. And you say, how do you know that? Because that was always Jesus' message. It was. He spent his entire earthly ministry teaching that he is the one of whom scriptures, the scriptures foretold. He is the one whom God has sent to make right what we have wronged. He is God's answer to our sin problem. That was his message throughout his earthly ministry and was probably his message here in the temple. And notice how the people respond. They marveled. They said, how is it that this man has learning having never studied? They said, where did this guy learn so much? He's never been to the rabbinical schools. So we see here another mark of Jesus' greatness, his knowledge. And though many did not like to admit it, they had to admit that Jesus had superior knowledge. You ever notice how they could not argue with him? You notice that? You know, there are many in our world today who pale in comparison to the Pharisees when it comes to intelligence, but they think, oh, I could easily refute the claims of Christ. Just put me in that context, you know? If I were there, I'd make him look foolish. Oh, really? Let me tell you, these men were brilliant. And they were left speechless in the presence of Christ. He was a devastating teacher to argue with. You know, there's just some teachers you don't challenge. You know that? There are. I had some goofballs that I went to seminary with. And there are goofballs in seminary, by the way. I was one of them, but I wasn't one of these guys who tried to argue with professors in their field of study, you know, and tried to take them to task. And, you know, all of our professors were very, very bright, very learned men, but there were some who were just on another level, you know. And these guys would take these professors to task, and oftentimes the, the professors would very lovingly and kindly and graciously, yet noticeably, put these guys in their place. I had one guy question one of my Greek professors on Greek. Can you imagine that? And what was he thinking? And this is like one of the most brilliant Greek professors at the seminary. And this professor very lovingly but noticeably put this guy in his place. And it was embarrassing for the guy. Well, get this. The Jewish leaders were the professors. They were the PhDs of their day. And they were left speechless in the presence of Christ. His knowledge was far superior to theirs. Can you imagine someone so brilliant that they leave a room full of PhDs, dumbfounded and speechless? That was Jesus. 
Every time they tried to debate him, they got shut down so bad it was pathetic. So instead of confronting him on the truths of Scripture, they tried to find something they could get him on. So, so they asked, how does this man know what he knows having never learned? I could just see them. They're like, man, this guy's teaching. He's, he's a gifted guy. He's way too good. What can we do? Oh, I know. Hey, this guy's never gone to school. He doesn't have any titles by his name. He doesn't have any diplomas on the wall. He's never been in the rabbinical school. They thought if you can't knock his teaching, we'll knock his humble upbringing and his education. And they did that, right? When Jesus came on the scene, I'm sure many of them at first thought he was some hick from Galilee. But he showed them wrong when he started teaching. And notice Jesus' response here. Again, a response to end all responses. Notice his response in verse 16. So Jesus answered them saying, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. This verse leads us right into our third point. The third reason Jesus is to be thought of as a great teacher is because his message is divine. See, many wanted to know, who is your teacher? Where did you go to school? How do you know what you know? Jesus says, my doctrine is not mine, but whose? Him who sent me. And who sent Jesus? God. He says, my words are my Father's words. What I speak, He speaks. They are divine. Now, how do you argue with that? You know? He's saying, you may have received your doctrine from some credible rabbinical school, but I got mine straight from headquarters. And notice it's implied here that his message is different from theirs. He says, the reason you're having a difficult time with my teaching is because my teaching is divine and yours is from the minds of men. Wow. Folks, that's an absolutely devastating reply. But it's important that we grasp what's being said here. The reason we are to look to and follow the teachings of Jesus is because his message is divine. It's straight from headquarters. Why follow a teaching that comes from the mind of men when you can follow a teaching that comes from the mind of God? That's the point. And again... What Peter says at the end of chapter 6 gets right at this, doesn't he? He said, when Jesus asked the guys, he said, Are you guys leaving too? What what does Peter say? He says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no other option because your message is divine. So we're following you. So here's what we've learned so far. The reason we can look to Christ as the great teacher is because his investment is great, his knowledge is unmatched, and his message is divine. Fourth reason, his teachings are proven. Jesus' teachings are proven. Look at verse 17. He says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Like a a true teacher, Jesus gives his hearers a test here. He says this, he says, if you genuinely want to know God and do his will, if your desire is to be on board with him, then you will know whether my teachings are from him or whether or not I'm speaking on my own authority. 
And again, this was a devastating response to the religious leaders of the day. Jesus is basically saying here, those that don't know him and believe that God had sent him and doubt that his message is divine, Jesus says those people show by their actions and their unbelief that they don't know God and don't want to do his will because if they did, they would know and trust in him. That's what Jesus is saying here. So we learn here that the Jewish religious leaders had not simply missed the boat when it came to Jesus. They were not just honest skeptics and, and, and trying to be uh, devout God followers. We learn here that they failed to see Jesus for who he truly is because they really did not want to know God and did not want to do his will. Wow. That's Jesus' words there. That's what he's saying. There's an important truth here, folks. You know what it is? Jesus is saying there's no such thing as honest skepticism. You know, we often want to believe that there is. You know, uh, you often hear this about folks. Oh, man, he's just honestly skeptical. If I can just put that book in his hand and get him to read that book and, and say these certain things, that's going to trigger something because he's honestly skeptical. Listen, now the Spirit of God can do a work there, can use those books and your words but without him involved in the process, they will remain in unbelief. And we learn in Scripture over and over again that, that behind all unbelief, get this, behind all unbelief is a deeper-seated moral issue. Deep down, unbelievers don't want the God of the Bible to exist because they don't want to be accountable to him. It's a moral issue. All unbelievers don't truly and genuinely want to know God and do His will because Jesus says, if they did, they would know me. Not my words, those are Jesus' words. What did God say? Remember what He said in the Old Testament? That if we seek Him with all our heart, what? Will we find Him? Yeah. If we seek God and want to do His will, then, then, then we will find and follow Jesus. Jesus says in verse 17, if you truly want to please God, if you truly want to do his will, if this is you, then you will come to see me for who I truly am. Jesus says, if your desire is to do the will of God, you will see that my teachings are proven. You will see that my message is divine. One last point. His motives are pure. Jesus is to be thought of as the great teacher because his motives are pure. This is great right here. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. John MacArthur once said, Every phony baloney messiah... Every false teacher, every charlatan, every crook, every false savior the world has ever known has been in it for one of two or both reasons, money and or ego. So true, isn't it? Jesus is the exact opposite of that. He set his glory aside when he put, took on flesh and lived out his earthly ministry. And he did so not for his own glory, but for the glory of him who sent him. Once again, who's that? Who sent Jesus? God. 
to the glory of God the Father. God the Son set aside His glory. He humbled Himself, coming not to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus' point here in verse 18 is that His actions, His work, He came to accomplish and did accomplish proves that He is who He claimed to be. And in him there is no falsehood. Folks, for all of those reasons, Christ is to be looked to and followed as the great teacher. His investment is great. His knowledge is unmatched. His message is divine. His teachings are proven and his motives are pure. Therefore, he is to be looked to and trusted in and followed you're here this morning and you are not following this great teacher the Lord Jesus I want to urge you this morning to consider these points we have discussed in this short passage and make a commitment this day to be one of his disciples let's pray